Mr. Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? Actually, I'm pretty good, Matt, although it is $81 a pound, so it'd be a bit sad if I was anything else, really, wouldn't it? It, 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 it would. I think, I think, I think, what are you going to do when it hits 100? Yeah, I don't know. Feel pretty much like I do at the moment because it seems to be going in that direction. Yeah, yeah. We, shall, we shall see. Look, today we're going to talk about sort of the, uh, the momentum, okay? Not just price, but the, um, you know, industry, the infrastructure, the political will, um, and the general understanding of nuclear as a cheaper baseload green energy. So all good. Um, I'm slightly biased, but let's let's run with it. Um, we should talk about that because a lot of these conversations happened at COP28. Um, what can you tell us about uh, that? Well, the prominence of nuclear energy at COP28 is really impressive. And probably the best way, I saw a tweet from a a sort of a general green energy watcher who I've never, ever seen comment on nuclear. And their headline was, Nucleus Energy Steals the Show at COP28. And we've got to remember that uh, in COP25, it wasn't even allowed in. Nuclear energy made its first very uh, careful and shy appearance at COP26 and then did a little bit more in COP27, but it's really COP28 which has increased its exposure by an order of magnitude compared to even the previous year. Now, a lot of that, of course, is because of who the hosts are. So the UAE, in a matter of years, through constructing the Baraka nuclear power plant, have uh, decarbonized a quarter of their electricity grid. So they will now be 25% nuclear power and 25% clean. And they're already talking about building on that moment. Are they going to build more conventional nuclear power plants in the UAE? Are they going to um, move into SMR? So they've signed uh, several agreements at COP28 to now start working with key SMR vendors, not only on deploying into UAE, but also other parts of the Middle East. And there's talk about cooperating on global export programs as well. So that's had a lot to do with it, but it's also just a classic example of a technology whose time has absolutely come. If you think about there's a huge continued push towards uh, climate abatement, policymakers are now grappling with what on earth are they going to do to try and meet some of the commitments that the politicians have made across all sorts of different markets. People are engaging for the very first time on complex problems like how do you um, how do you reduce the carbon in industrial heating and uh, other very difficult to abate areas, and policymakers throughout all of these different countries and industries are having collective oh shit moments as they try and figure out how do they do it. That's why nuclear power's time has come. And it's uh, it's irrefutable. Even if you're in Germany, it's irrefutable. And we're seeing a movement um, from the sort of right of centre say, well, come on, let's reverse this policy. We're seeing certain polls that are saying that the majority of Germans um, support the idea of restarting reactors. So it's time has come. And for the first time at a COP conference, we've seen a very well organized, very well coordinated net zero for nuclear campaign that involves 
World Nuclear Association, the IAEA, all of the leaders of different organizations. Um, we've had more than 120 companies sign up to a net zero for nuclear pledge, including Bannerman Energy. We were proud to be invited to do that. But the giants are there. Big prime movers of our industry are all supporting the concept, but they're also there. They're at COP28 uh, at the moment, pushing it along. Okay, it, 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 it's amazing, actually, because, and, and, and the one start that came out of it, so the one line that came out of it for me, and uh, above nuclear energy stealing the show, is the fact what you've got is multiple governments actually signing up to the pledge of tripling, tripling, that's 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 a that's a that's a, a heck of achievement. Tripling global nuclear energy capacity by 2050. It so- sounds like a long way away. It's not. It's you're going to have to have this huge infrastructure built out to uh, to meet that goal. You're going to have to have money move into the sector, money made available, cheap money made available uh, as 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 well. Now, I, th- I think we I think there was talk like 22 companies signed up. So. Um, how, how do we get more companies to more countries to sign up for this? Because it's it's going to need more than twenty two, isn't it? Yeah, and the the twenty two is a fantastic start. You've got a big range. Like uh, you've got countries like, for example, Ghana's signed it. Now it's easy for them to triple nuclear power because they don't have it. But the point is, they're very seriously engaged with introducing nuclear power, and the way that the pledge is phrased is. It's a collective responsibility, but an individual country or nation responsibility. So for Ghana, they're supporting the collective responsibility, which is great. But then you've got the US, who not only signed it, but with the UK and France, instigated it. Now, that's profound because the US has always been plugged into everyone's thinking and everyone's models as a mature market. You know, it might go up or down a little bit, but essentially it's going to straddle the 100 gigawatt capacity for nuclear power within the US at best, and it's dropped below that with reactors being turned off. So now they're talking about 200 gigawatts of additional nuclear capacity in the US alone by 2050. And there's been announcements that the US has made as well that hang off that. They They know that they're going to have to really solidly stimulate and support the SMR market to be able to do that. And they've announced Exim Bank support for export programs and other supportive measures to get those SMRs going quickly and in many different aspects of their society and their industrial complex. But that's huge. Then you've got France. Now, we know that they've been supportive of increasing their nuclear fleet. They've recently done something of a backflip under Macron's leadership. But now they're going to triple. You know, they've got 66 gigawatts that they're going to triple. Uh, you've got countries like Sweden who recently announced they want to uh, increase their nuclear fleet by 10 conventional nuclear reactors, and they want to supplement that with SMIs as well. So they're on the path to tripling already, but it really bakes in that intent. It's a profound, it's enormous, it really will make a massive difference. And the, the signatory who's missing is China, but they're doing it anyway. They're more than tripling by 2050, so they don't even need to be on the, on the pledge. To your question about, well, you know, who else is going to join? Do we need more countries? What I've 
feel and I think and I certainly hope we're witnessing with COP28 is a tipping point in several aspects of social acceptance of nuclear power. And a an emotional tipping point is so much more powerful than a technical tipping point. And the reason is that, you know, if you look at a technical tipping point, uh, the whole concept of a tipping point is that's that final step change in technology that enables a whole lot of things to happen. But generally that happens very slowly. Emotional tipping points can happen in the blink of an eye. And collectively, we're having an emotional tipping point at a political level right now. The knowledge that most of these politicians had this month was no different to what they had six months ago and probably no different to what they had a year ago. What has changed is they've sensed that the political landscape now rewards them being on the front foot with nuclear and them being on the front foot promoting nuclear power. And within a month, 22 countries have formed that view. Now, that will continue to snowball. There will be more and more countries saying, you know, if we're not seen to be leaders on this, we're going to risk handing the initiative to our political adversaries, and we don't want to do that. And it's countries that are, you know, right of centre governments, left of centre governments, the whole gambit. This is, in a collective sense, a bipartisan issue now. Industry's cheering it on. Um, as we'll talk about, there's a, a variety of different um, industrial progress positions being made on nuclear power. And collectively, I think what this is going to do is it's going to create a profound difference in the way that nuclear energy is talked about at a societal and a political level. And that then becomes an enabler for all of those positive attributes that we've been talking about that are well understood, that are scientifically proven to now play their role. So it's a, it's a little bit early to tell. I'd like to see how COP28 finishes. I'd like to see how the mainstream media handles a lot of these factors. But what I'm certainly gunning for is that this will be remembered as a tipping point where suddenly nuclear power is unleashed to play the vital positive role that it needs to in number one, mitigating carbon output, secondly, decarbonizing industry, and thirdly, doing it in a way that doesn't go rot positive economic and social progress that's been made around the globe. And like, and I think, and you, well said, um, understood, but you haven't mentioned so far the Sapporo 5. Now, it sounds like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's it's not, guys. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's some of the big, biggest names in, in, in nuclear com- countries coming together and actually committing to increase well, allocating capital to uranium enrichment and conversion. So w- w- what can you tell us there? So um, careful and uh, sort of religious watchers of the energy show would remember that we talked about the five G8 nations. Now, that would have been back in April, I think, is when that all happened. So the G8 occurred in Japan, in Sapporo, and five of those G8 nations created something of a pledge that they would work to uh, support essentially non-Russian nuclear fuel cycle development and investment. Now, at the time, there was a bit of scepticism because it's easy to write a piece of paper, but uh, it was 
days later that I was in The Hague attending the World Nuclear Fuel Cycle Conference. And I had the chance to have some really long conversations with WNA's Director General, Salah Bilbao Indian, who stepped me through, you know, what had been involved in all of these late night discussions and the uh, input and the um, influence that World Nuclear Association had in being able to shape it in the right way. And so I came away from that having a feeling that this was something really substantial. And now the Tarantino Sapporo 5, as you've now forever called them, Matt, now they're starting to put their money where their mouth is. They're starting to deliver on the next phase of this intent, which involves funding, it involves concrete steps towards increasing the conversion and enrichment capacity uh, outside of Russia and impliedly outside of China, not that they're an issue at the moment, but the idea is that they want to ensure that the civilian nuclear world in the West never again is subject to energy manipulation through the nuclear fuel cycle. Now, why is that good? Well, for investors in the uranium sector, it's fantastic, partly because they're talking a tight time frame, three years. So they want to really throw regulatory support and money and intergovernmental support at unlocking the conversion bottleneck that we've got at the moment in the sector and trying to build enrichment capacity. That enables a lot more uranium to be processed to meet the various growth requirements that this tripling of nuclear power is going to create. It unlocks the conversion bottleneck in the short term to enable overfeeding to address some of the enrichment constraints. And in simple terms, it's a great thing for uranium because it's opening up the funnel through which mines like Bannerman's Tango mine will be able to push uranium through. It, it, you know what? I, I think the other thing we need to remember, this is this is the um, COP28, it's, it's the UN Climate Change Conference, right? Um, this year hosted um, by the UAE. UAE. And, uh, and I, th I was listening to some of the conversations um, on state of Sultan Al-Jabbar, the, the, the guy who was kind of running the show there. I think there was a slight um, element of distraction over you know the fact that he said, yeah, well, you are having conversations with uh, other groups because to you know oil, oil, oil contracts too and obviously fossil fuel is is, is, is not de rigueur uh, at the moment but so rather than sort of climate change I, I wonder if this is a climate transition period that that we're in obviously nuclear stole the show but it's not going to do it overnight and as, as we've you know outlined the support of five we're talking about putting funding in place to you know help with you know in, enrichment conversion and stuff but it's not going to happen overnight um so it'd be interesting to see at COP29 how that conversation evolves and, and changes. And I think they're going to announce the, the hosts at some point in December for, for, for that. Um, right. We better bounce on to some company news. Um, and the, the, the Aussies are, are, are killing it at the moment. So Boss Energy, what can you tell us? So great move by Boss. They've raised $205 million Aussie dollars. The raising and the trading halt went out for the purposes of an acquisition. So that, of course, got everyone buzzing here on Monday and Tuesday. Tuesday, in fact. So 
what they've now announced is, first of all, they successfully did the raising and it was very, very well supported. There is a lot of appetite for quality uranium stories out there at the moment. No question about that. But moreover, they announced what the acquisition was, which is a 30% project interest in the Altamesa uranium mine, which very much like Boss's honeymoon project in South Australia, is coming back online in Texas. Uh, the it, It's Encore who will retain the 70% joint venture interest. Makes a lot of sense. Boss will have not only a operating interest in the joint venture or, or a project interest in the joint venture, but they'll have the offtake for that. So that will be their uranium to sell. So it gives them a good foothold into U- direct US uranium sales. It's an ISR mine coming back onto back online. So it's got a lot of synergies with what Boss has got in Honeymoon. So good move, good for Encore. They're putting in $10 million into Encore's coffers corporately at the same time. So they'll have a few shares in Encore. And I think it's a really well thought out, well constructed deal, as you would expect from the management of Boss. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, friend, friend of the show and friend of ours. Um, and and I, and I think the other smart thing is, like, whilst the stock is high, you know, whilst whilst the going is is good, raise the capital. Um, you know, look at where they were eighteen months ago, right? Uh, so I think good, good, good deal. Good for Encore um, as well. I, I would I would say after their purchase um, of Altamesa from Energy Fuels, so and, and good for the sector. All good. Now um, the other the other good guys in all of this is Sput. Um, they've been active. Yeah, they've finally started to turn the tap on a little bit. They acquired uh, two hundred thousand pounds last week, and then overnight they've just acquired another two hundred and fifty six thousand pounds. So we haven't seen these levels in many months. And if if we're lucky, and what I'd hope is that we see them start to trade more consistently NAV positive, and it'd be really good to see them back at this sort of a run rate a bit more consistently. That's something that uranium investors will see as a very tangible catalyst for not only the uranium price, but for equity. So one to really watch closely. Where do they go from here? But tell me this, there's, there's sort of unusual numbers involved, so like 200 plus 256 pounds is this them sort of, sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel? Is that, can we be hopeful? Uh, well, in a sense it isn't, and in a sense it isn't. So at most of the spot uranium that's traded in the world is traded essentially either through US markets or through US conventions. And the US convention is million pounds or thousands of pounds of U308. And so typically what we see as spot buyers a hundred thousand pounds U three hundred eight, two hundred thousand pounds U three hundred eight. Now, occasionally you'll see spot market trades in tons uranium. That's uranium metal without the oxygen attached to it. So, whilst two hundred and fifty-six thousand pounds might sound like a weird number, where they're looking under every little corner, scraping the other thousand pounds here and a thousand pounds there. Actually, that just translates to a hundred ton of contained uranium metal. So, what it does mean is that they're looking everywhere, and they're they're dealing with a counterparty who owns or owns the uranium in a denomination of hundreds of tons uranium contained, uh, which is not the U.S. market and tends in the spot market not to be the European market as well. So, it does mean that they're looking everywhere they can to find the material. And that's consistent 
with what we know about the tightness of the spot market. Okay, interesting. Okay, that, 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 that clears that up. I appreciate that. Yeah, and we're going to sort of jump back to the kind of format which we are, have been doing for the you know past few months, which, uh, and I'm going to kick off with uh, winner of the week. Who are you allocating that to? Uh, that's for BHP, the big Australian. Okay, okay. Uh, now, they haven't really won anything as such, but I just want to shout out to them because they've now talked publicly about looking to deploy SMRs or micro-reactors in their Saskatchewan potash operations. Big potash mine, BHP has a big presence in Saskatchewan, haven't had a presence in uranium so far, although people are really watching for that. And with Canada having such a big push now towards SMRs, it's really important that such a big global miner is open about their aspirations to use micro-reactors on their mine sites where they can. And particularly for potash and other mines where it's not just about the electricity you use to mill and grind and operate a processing circuit. Um, many of these um, metals and other minerals, they require power for heating and geochemical processes and so on. So it's... Um, it's important that they find a decarbonized solution to that. And micro-reactors just make so much sense. It's interesting because uh, we dialed in from the Global Uranium Conference in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago. And there are a couple of people from BHP who were at the conference with the sole reason of reporting back to their technical improvements division on the current status of SMRs and micro-reactors. So I had a really good chat with them. And it's entirely consistent with this latest publicity around or latest media report around BHP now actively looking to consider all options, including nuclear power. It is, it is, I was having a chat yesterday with a guy from NSKY Consulting um, talk, talking about S SMRs or, or, or micro-reactors and mobile reactors and you know where the responsibility would lie in terms of you know, getting permission to, to do that because not, not not every province, state, country is going to be happy about some random company using, you know, nuclear power. Um, so the project would need to be big enough um, and perhaps there needs to be a bit of time for people to kind of get used to it as a, as a, as a safe, safe medium, demonstrate that kind of safe, safe medium um, at that in the in the world of mining, so there's probably not too many projects, and obviously BHP, BHP potentially has identified one, but maybe further down the line there will be there will be. Um, let us talk. We love winners of the week. We also love bungles of the week. So, where where's the bungle of the week being allocated? I'm going to be a little bit playful this week, if that's all right, Matt, because we couldn't really find anything that. You know, anyone's done particularly badly. Even the policymakers are behaving themselves right now. Germany's wise enough to keep its head down on nuclear when the rest of the world is realising that's the answer. So the bungle of the week, I'm, uh, I'm borrowing from a tweet that uh, hopefully we can put up on the screen here, showing a, a bear in tears. And so the bungle of the week, tongue-in-cheek, is being awarded to all of those bears who particularly over the last several months have been trying to talk the market down, not in a constructive sense. I'm not talking about people who are always trying to prize open the weaknesses in a in a theory or the weaknesses in a setup. That's important. It's important that investors are constantly asking themselves, 
where could my thesis go wrong? What could disrupt my thesis? If that happens, how do I react? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the incessant bears who have far-flung theories or poorly thought through risks who say that, you know, there's a billion pounds to be mined in Sweden, that type of thing, which for people who really understand the industry know that that's uh, not a threat at all. So for them, I'm awarding the collective bungle. And we did a little bit of work and we realized the last time we awarded the bungle of the week was on 18 or 19 October. And in that time, when the bears were still looking for reasons to believe the uranium price was coming back down again, the uranium price was at $69 a pound. So in seven weeks, it's gone up another 17%, which makes me cocky enough to uh, to tongue-in-cheek award the bungle to all of those bears. I think they might have to have a good hard look at themselves now. And I'm sure they'll take it. In, in the tongue-in-cheek uh, way that you meant it. Um, look, the, 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 when I want to, want to talk about um, one of Canada's finest, um, which is the... The the and we t- I know we joke about this, but the the can, the can do attitude uh, here. So the, the the question is, what is the role of the can do monarch reactor, um, and what are the advantages of it? Will it be a winner of the week in the future? Okay, so we're referring to some the can do technology has been around for a long time, but I think this question refers to some recent media around the development of a thousand megawatt can-do reactor um, called the Monarch and why that might be a good thing to have constructed around the world and developed and exported. So let's take a couple of steps back. The can-do was a Canadian-developed technology that are generally a lot smaller than conventional boiling water or pressurized water reactors. So instead of being roughly 1,000 gigawatts, they tend to be roughly 400 to 500 megawatts sorry, 1,000 megawatts versus four to 500 megawatts. Um, now, what makes them really different and very effective is they don't rely on enriched fuel. So they're not powered by uranium that's been through the whole nuclear fuel cycle to come out at being, say, 4.95% uranium-235. They run on naturally occurring uranium, which is 0.71% uranium-235, that's then just converted into an oxide. <clears throat> now, that gives them a lot of flexibility. It means that their time is now when the world's really fretting about enrichment availability and conversion availability, as in conversion into UF6. Uh, it's great to have can-do reactors, and Canada's certainly benefiting a lot from that right now. The other place where they're very prominent is in a, a version of a Kandu reactor has um, been uh, developed, co-opted in India. And so that's important for India because they can't access the nuclear fuel cycle easily because they're not a signatory, neither are their arch enemy Pakistan, to the non-proliferation treaty. So the indigenous reactors in India are Kandu reactors and that also enables them to avoid getting caught up in the requirements for conversion to UF6 and enrichment. So that's the CANDU reactor. Now, why is it interesting and important that we now see much larger gigawatt-scale CANDU reactors? I think it's got its most relevant application in countries that are nuclear newcomers 
that have got uranium mines or the potential for uranium mines in the future because their ability to use their own natural resources that are inside their own borders to produce nuclear power is a lot more viable if the only step they need to create industrially is to take yellow cake and turn it into a UO2 oxide that can then be put into the Kandu reactor. So it's a very useful tool to have in the overall toolbox, the overall baseload, clean energy, reliable 24-7 nuclear-powered toolbox, and it'll particularly suit newcomer nations or existing countries that have got their own uranium. And this all comes in the context of the big theme of the day being energy security. It's a dramatically enhanced form of energy security. It's also a race to the finishing line because the Russians are out there selling their technology. The Chinese are out selling their technology. And we've talked about this ad nauseum um, as to the kind of geopolitical influence that that then gives them. So it'll be interesting to see how this technology spreads its wings, uh, what the take up is, and what new technologies, especially when, when we're talking about SMRs, we were earlier, um, and you know, and how that provides that kind of energy security that people or countries are looking for at the moment. Um, tweet of the week is it's always been a favourite of mine, and I, I like the well, like the one that you selected this week because it's it's full of facts. It <laughs> disables any myths around. Um, uh, nuclear uh, beautifully, I, I think. So who, who are we awarding that to? We've departed from the usual practice of finding a cute meme or something that's very visual. We've had lots of graphs, for example, or charts on this segment. Uh, we're going for something very cerebral to mark the occasion of people thinking for a change at COP28. So it's Brian Gitt, and he's put this fabulous tweet, which we'll have in the link in the show notes and have it up on screen that's basically nuclear power mythbusters. What's particularly good is if you follow the thread on each of those facts, he's then got the backup for it. And that's what makes it useful. There's a great saying that says, um, if, you debate, if you debate on opinions, you can only answer it on opinions. In other words, if you assert something without facts, then to challenge that, you don't need facts. And what Brian's done is he's taken assertions that are myths, he's challenged them with facts and then laid all of the facts out for everyone to read and access. So Brian, by the way, uh, works for one of the major SMR developers. He keeps his Twitter profile fairly uh, personal in the sense that he doesn't attach to the company because that enables him to really speak his mind. And he's a very good follower if you're wanting both sides of the both sides of the argument on clean energy, in particular renewables and intermittents and storage and nuclear and so on, very good follow for someone who wants to have their thought process challenged. Uh, he can be quite provocative, and I certainly enjoy that. But it's a it's not for the faint of hearted. If you're still opening your eyes each morning, hoping to see rainbows and unicorns. Well, I, I, this this fact based discussion might just catch on. I think after the last three years, I, I had my doubts. <laughs> it's more about feelings than anything else. But do go and uh, sign up to uh, Brian Git, um, which is at Brian Git two T's uh, on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, and then finally, finally, the, 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 
This is uh, one which has always been always been a little bit of fun. Uh, Moonshots and fizzers of the week. <laughs> Moonshot and fizzers from one of the industry leaders. So EDF, they are the government-owned oh, yeah. utility that operates the fleet of reactors in France. Mm-hmm. Well, they've now put out a green bond for nuclear, 500 million euros, uh, to do some work on one of their reactors. We followed the slow pace of change in the way that the EU has regarded nuclear energy for many years. And it was a couple of years ago when the big step forward was that nuclear power was finally recognised in a transitional sense, but nonetheless recognised within the EU's green taxonomy, which in theory was then going to open certain financings associated with nuclear power for green bonds and other easy-to-come-by green money. So EDF are now testing that. Of course, it qualifies. What they're really testing is how deep is the investor appetite for it, one of the sort of terms they can get. The timing couldn't be better for all of the reasons we've talked about. What I'm really hoping is that this becomes a moonshot because we see an avalanche of investors who are green money to deploy who also don't mind a few facts in their analysis of the situation and demonstrate to EDF and all of the other nuclear um, utilities and developers in the EU that this is a highly viable source of funding. And we need to remember for everyone out there that nuclear energy is capital intensive. It's capital intensive up front. Major refurbishments take a lot of capital. The running costs are very low compared to other forms of energy. So any impact that you can have on reducing the cost of capital has a very large impact on the ultimate cost of the electricity that's produced by nuclear power. So this is a big deal. It does certainly have the potential to be a moonshot. I hope it's not a fizzer. We will know very soon. I think in the current climate, that'll be unlikely, but it's one to watch to see if it is indeed a moonshot or a fizzer. Well, we are looking forward to all the news that's coming out to the end of this year and uh, very excited about 2024, uh, price of uranium. Um, let, let's see if we can get to that magic 100 in Q1. We shall see. Um, Brandon, good to speak to you as always. Uh, we'll see you soon, hopefully. Thanks, Matt. Exciting times. Keep your eyes open. They gl- glued to the uranium screen. <laughs>